Well, take your Bible, if you will, and open to the book of Jude. You'll have to find Peter and John, and then if you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. Go backwards. And uh, after 3 John, before Revelation, you'll find one chapter, the book of Jude. Jude would have been the half-brother of Jesus, and he has taken up the call of Christ. When Jesus was living, Jude did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He saw him as his brother, but he didn't see him as God. But he came to believe in Jesus, probably through the cross experience and the resurrection. And Jude then becomes a follower, and God allows him to have one of the letters that he wrote to the church canonized in Scripture. And we have that passage here today. For the next three weeks, we've just finished the Matthew series. Now for the next three weeks, we're going to be in Jude. We, we started the book of Jude, you might remember, way back before Matthew. And then COVID hit. And when we came out of COVID, we started uh, with some other messages through the summer and got into the Matthew series in September, and we never looked back. But, uh, but now we want to come and finish this up. And today, really, it's not so much a message verse by verse out of Jude as it is a launching pad for a topical sermon that I want to preach. I don't preach topical sermons very often. I, I'm not against them. I don't think that they're evil. I don't think there's something wrong with a topical sermon. I just don't, I don't believe that the church should have a steady diet of topical messages because all you're doing is picking and choosing the messages that you want to share or the messages you think people want to hear or need to hear. Well, when you go verse by verse, you cover the whole counsel of God. You don't leave anything out. That is a far better way to feed your people. How many of you would say that when your kids were little, and maybe you have small children now, that when they sit down at the dinner table, I know that when I was being raised, and my parents are here today, they are here every week, Walt and Mary Lou, stand up. My mom's going to hate that. Look at her. Walt and Mary Lou Simpsrot, right there. But I can tell you that when I was a boy, whatever was on your plate, you will eat it, okay? Unless you're my brother Barry, who when we would do spring cleaning, mom would look behind the windows, at the windowsill behind the curtain and find green peas. He would take his peas off his plate and just set them back there. So, but we, 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 we didn't just eat meat. We didn't just eat dessert. We had vegetables. And we learned to love vegetables. And our bodies needed all the nutrients that a vegetable provides, that the fruit pro provides, all the different food groups. Well, the Word of God is the same way. God has given us instruction by His Word. The whole thing is for us to chew on. Not just bits and pieces, and not just parts that we jump around to from week to week. So I say that to say that verse by verse is by far the better way to expound the Scripture to people. But there's also times where a topical focus is important. We're going to start something new here at Vero Bible. I've wanted to do this from the beginning, but the timing just didn't seem to be right. But we are going to take a Sunday periodically... It might be in the middle of a series. By the way, the book of Acts, we're going to be studying Acts uh, in September. And if you haven't got your journal uh, of the study of the book of Acts, they're in the back. Get one. Um, but we might break it up with another message like the one today. We're going to be focusing today 
on contending for the faith, defending the faith, recognizing apostasy for what it is and how the church today is under attack. The word of God is under attack. Now, we're not going to cover all that today, but over the next three weeks, you're, you're going to hear it. But the reality is, today, we're going to look at, and I'm going to do this periodically, look at a, one of the great leaders in church history that defended the faith when it was not popular, that took the high road and stayed true to God, only living by the word of God and turning against apostasy that surrounded him. And so today, we're going to be looking at a particular man, and we'll talk about it in just a moment. But I want us to go back to Jude verse 3 first, and let's just make sure we're all on the same page here. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. That is, to, in the contend in the Greek, to fight for the faith. Fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude set out to write this letter about the common salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. But as he was getting ready to write, or as he was writing, somebody probably came to him with a word, or maybe he saw something brewing, and while he was going to write about salvation, all of a sudden he realized, I can't. The Spirit of God led him to focus instead on contending for the faith that was once for all passed down from the saints. Let me tell you what that means. That means there are no new revelations today. That everything that the saints that had before us, we have today. Those in the New Testament. And so we have a, a, a clear picture of sound doctrine from the Word of God that's been passed down to us. And down through the ages of church history, there have been men and women who have faced persecution and death contending for the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. Why? Why would the first martyr in the church, who is Stephen, why would the disciples of Jesus himself, why would the, the, the Apostle Paul and countless Christians through every single generation leading up to this generation, why would they risk their lives for the sake of the gospel? Why would they hold true to the one true faith found in God's word? I'll tell you why. Because biblical Christianity is all about truth. God's objective revelation found in Scripture is everything we need for life and for happiness and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. The reason why they stood on the truth was because that's the only truth. The reason why they didn't uh, fail or falter when they were attacked or back off, back down, was because they knew that this was the only way to truly live life with tremendous joy and happiness. God wrote only one book. It's called the Bible. And it's the New York Times number one bestseller every single year. And the New York Times won't print that. I'm going to just give you just a statistic, just to show you what I'm talking about. How the Bible, through all history, no book, no book, no ancient manuscript comes even close to the Bible. Just take the top ten 
bestsellers of the New York Times of all time, okay? The top 10. Let me give you, here they are. Okay, you ready? Number one for the, for the uh, New York Times, The Da Vinci Code. Five million copies were sold. Number two, Harry Potter. Four million, four. 4.4 million. Number three, Harry Potter. 4.2, all the different uh, in the series. Number four, Harry Potter. 4.1. Number five, 50 Shades of Grey. 3.7. Number six, Harry Potter. 3.5. Number seven, Harry Potter. 3.4. Number eight, Harry Potter. 3.3. Number nine, Angels and Demons. Dan Brown. Number 10, Harry Potter. Seven of the ten are a child's fable. One is about sexual immorality. One is about demons and angels told from a very weird perspective. The total of all those bestsellers and all the copies that were sold of the, num of the top ten books that the New York Times has ever put out or has ever uh, supported, listen, the top is 34.5 million total of all of them. Put them all together, 34.5. Guess how many Bibles are sold every single year? 20 million. In just two years, you have more Bibles sold than the all-time top 10 and all the copies sold of New York Times bestsellers. See, no book comes close to the Bible. It contains all the truth necessary to order our spiritual lives. We don't need to consult any source. We don't need something for spiritual or moral principles to govern our lives outside the Bible. Scripture is absolute truth. Let me tell you what that means. It's the rule by which all other truths claim, uh, truth claims are measured. You measure everything else against the Word of God. This is why the Bible is under constant attack from, from what we now have. It used to be a post-modern culture. It's a post-Christian culture. We live in a secular culture. And this secular culture attacks the Bible vehemently. The worldly belief system that is on the rise today is this idea that no one should ever claim to know objective truth. Nobody should ever lay claim to the truth. There's no absolute truth, only relative truth only what's relative to you. So they shoot down the Bible. But authentic Christianity says, and Jude says it here first, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Christian truth isn't subject to change or modifications. Some of you come into the room today and you maybe are not a believer and, and so you, you are well-read Maybe you have a degree, maybe you have your doctorate, your PhD, and so you have a whole consortium of materials and resources that you draw upon to live your life, and you see the Bible as simply one of. Well, and, and because of that, you have opinion. Based on the data that you've gathered, you have opinions about life, about uh, how to live, about uh, uh, how to eat, how to uh, work. you got, you got an opinion on it all. Here, here's what I want to say to you, as was said to me, and it's accurate. My opinion compared to the Bible doesn't even show up on the scale. 
Look, you can have an opinion about whatever you want to have, but the reality is once you're dead, your opinion dies with you. But the Bible stands forever. Why? Because it's immutable like, the, like God himself. It never goes away. The Bible is not predicated upon the culture of the day. It's not predicated upon intellectual assent. It's given to children. They can understand it. But the truths that are given to even our children will last long after you and I are gone. So you can have your opinion, but your opinion doesn't amount to a hill of beans compared to the Bible. And you say, oh, you, you, you really... Uh, you're, you, Look, I'm just telling you, my opinion doesn't amount to a hill of beans. That's why I have a podium. That's why I have a Bible. That's why I have notes. Because I want to make sure that what you're getting from me is God's word, not my opinions. Okay? While every person's understanding of truth is at different levels, every person can be refined and sharpened by the study of God's word. Yet the truth itself doesn't need to be refined or retooled in order to meet a person where they live or where they are in life. The Bible is the same yesterday, today, and forever, just like its founder, Jesus Christ. It will work. It worked in the first century. It worked in the 10th century. It worked in the 20th century. And it works in the 21st century. It's not based upon what's going on in culture or in society. It's based upon truth that never changes in other words we need to adapt our understanding of god's truth to our lives rather than adapt or or that we adapt we adapt to the word of god rather than the word adapt to us abraham moses david all the apostles they all believed in this truth it's a truth that still works today i hope that you see that this is why we spend diligent time at Bureau Bible Fellowship in the study of God's Word. And by the way, you should be doing that in your home as well, per personally, having diligent, continual study time in the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul said this to the believer, do your best to present yourself to God as, a, as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. You need to spend time in the Word so that you have the ability to discern truth from error. The world is filled with error right now. Many Christians watch TV, read the news, read books, and they're filled with error. And it's like this. They don't get it. They don't see it as error. They don't even recognize it as error. Why? Because they don't know the truth. You can't recognize the false if you don't know what the authentic looks like. And, and that's what's happening in our world today. He says, don't, don't, don't let there be a need for you to be ashamed. If you're not dedicating, dedicating yourself to rightly divide the Scripture, then you're being sloppy as a Christian. And you should be ashamed for that. That's what, that's what he's saying here. The truth is everything to a Christian. That's why we're called to refute error, defend the truth, and proclaim Scripture as the supreme truth against every lie propagated by the world. However, many evangelical churches today consider it politically incorrect to argue sound doctrine. They've fallen into the trap of just letting the world dictate what the church should look like and be like and what the focus should be in the church. Look, we're not here to become a tear-generating church. 
We're here to be a wheat-generating church. We're growing believers, not weeds. We're thankful when God brings weeds. I used to be a weed, and then I got saved, and God turned me into, I went from chaff into a wheat stalk, and, I, and now I'm growing in Christ. Thank the Lord for that. But maybe you're still a weed. Well, our service is for wheat, not weeds. So if you leave mad because, well, they don't have the right sound, they didn't have any light show, no presentation, they didn't lower the lights during worship, eh, they don't get it. No, you don't get it. That's weed stuff. I'm not saying it's wrong. Look, look, listen. I'm not saying it's wrong to have lights. I'm not saying it's wrong to have contextualization. Just don't make that the focus. You don't have to lower the lights to make it feel like God's present here. God's present here with fluorescent lights in a cafeteria of a school. Amen. He's here. So we walk by the truth, not by what we feel. Don't be led by sensuality. Let sensuality, let the emotions follow what you know to be true. Amen? Big difference. Listen, you can say what you want, but, but the church was not designed to be tolerant. The church is designed to be intolerant. It's not designed to be inclusive. It's designed to be exclusive. You say, that's very arrogant of you and so haughty to even say that. I didn't. Jesus did. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me pretty exclusive he wasn't really being tolerant of buddha or muhammad or anybody else so we don't brag because we have the gospel we have the truth we're thankful that god saved us he reached us in our sinfulness we're just like the the weeds but god came and changed us and transformed us amen so there's this thanksgiving in our heart and we need to recover this fresh love for biblical truth, church. We have the truth in a world where most people are simply wandering around in hopeless ignorance. We should be shouting from the housetops the truth of God's word to them lovingly, carefully, as the Spirit leads us. They need it. The light can't come on. The gospel can't reach them if they don't hear the message. And we're the messengers. We're the sowers. We're to throw the seed. And Jesus said, just know that three-fourths of the seed is going to fall on people who don't want to hear it, or they're not going to receive it, or it's not going to stick. But one out of every four, the light will go on. What? I want Jesus. So you keep sharing. You just keep throwing seed everywhere. Broadcast it. That's what the scripture, the Greek, it means to broadcast. First time that the word broadcast was used. It was not used in radio. It was used of sharing the word of God. Isn't that wonderful? I said earlier that down the annals of church history, many have been persecuted and faced death while defending the truth of God's word, while exposing apostate systems, man-made systems, while exposing false teachers or false uh, doctrines. One such man is Jan Hus. Jan Hus. 
Anybody who knows the history of the Protestant Reformation knows the name John Huss. That's how we would pronounce it. I want to talk to you about John Huss. I want to inspire you. I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you today to be a Christian that stands for Christ even when it goes against the system of the church. We stand for Jesus. John Huss was a Bohemian. He was from what would be called today uh, Croatia, along the Adriatic Sea. Huss was a, re, he's a pre-Reformation reformer. He lived about 100 years before Martin Luther. He was influenced by John Wycliffe, who lived just before, Wycliffe actually died just a few years after John Huss was born. And back in those early days, people were named according to their village. So at the age of 20, young Jan shortened his name to Hus. From what? From the city that he was born in, Husenek. Back in those days, you would take the name of your city in your name. And so rather than be called John Husenek, he shortened it, John Hus. Hus means goose. This was John Goose. Okay? The goose is his nickname. It stuck. Why? Because John Hus was martyred. He was burned at the stake a hundred years before Martin Luther and the Reformation took off. Luther was stirring through some old messages as a monk, and he came upon a whole box of messages from John Hus a hundred years earlier. And he was so blown away by the power of these sermons because John Hughes stayed faithful to the word of God, even in the Catholic church. And he said, I don't know why they cooked the goose. He was a good man. The day for the cooking of the goose was July 6, 1415. How did he die? John Hughes was taken captive by the Roman Catholic Church. He was a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. He was dressed in all of his priestly garments, and they then began to strip him piece by piece by piece until he was virtually naked in front of the whole assembly. That was called defrocking. He had been condemned to die by the Council of Constance, and the bishop at the Council of Constance decreed that he was to be executed by burning. The bishop ordered him to be tied to the stake they actually put a crown on his head that said he's a son of the devil for preaching the word of God. And the bishop ordered him to be tied at the stake and the flames engulfed him. And as they did, historians say that he said, quote, Lord Jesus... It is for you that I patiently endure this cruel death. Have mercy on my enemies. And then he went on reciting the Psalms and the names and, and the flames engulfed him and took his life. He was so revered that the Roman Catholic Church, after his death, took the remnants from the ground beneath the stake and buried them and threw them and threw the bones into the lake. They wanted no remembrance of John Hus. 
but the people of Prague, where he pastored in Croatia. The people came, and they scooped up the dirt beneath the stake, and they took it back to Croatia with them. They loved him so much. They took him back to Bohemia to constitute a memorial in his honor. And it was a hundred years later that Martin Luther was rummaging through the stacks in the library, and he said these words, I was overwhelmed with astonishment. I could not understand for what cause they had hurt so great a man who explained the scriptures with so much gravity and skill. Hus became a hero to Luther because he preached the Bible. He preached the biblical doctrines of the scripture, the doctrines that were passed down once for all to all the saints, the very doctrines that would later be crucial to the Reformation because Hus was hostile in the eyes of the Roman Catholic Church. He was hostile because he saw the church selling indulgences to people in hopes of shortening their punishment in purgatory. And there is no biblical reference of purgatory and certainly no reference of getting people to give you money so that they can have a peace of mind that they're not going to have to stay there very long. So why was the goose cooked? Why, as a priest in the church, did the church burn him at the stake? When Hus entered the priesthood, he only did it to escape poverty. An interesting story. It was a good way to make a stable living, I thought, he thought. So he became a priest. He was bright, and because of that, he was able to fly through the educational process, got his bachelor's, his master's, and his doctorate. We're not talking about a man who was not skilled in Scripture. We're talking about someone who was well-trained. He was ordained as a priest in 1401, and because of his intellectual and natural abilities, he was placed in Prague at Bethlehem Chapel, a very large church that seated in that day in the 1400s, listen, seated 3,000 people. Even from the beginning, Hus went against the grain of the Catholic Church. He preached in the language of the people and would not preach it in Latin as he, was, as he was told. The reason was because he said, I want the people to understand what's being said. He had become influenced by the writings of John Wycliffe, who lived just a little before him, and Wycliffe had committed to the word of God, and he was doing the same. He said this, Huss said that he desired, quote, to hold, believe, assert whatever is contained in Scripture, as long as I have breath in me. It was that commitment to truth found only in the Bible that put him on a direct collision course with the church. Not only was he preaching the Bible, he was preaching it in a way that the people could understand it. That posed a huge problem for the sacramental system that the church had developed, which controlled the people by their ignorance. We want to keep them ignorant so preach it in Latin. So the Catholic Church forbid him to preach and eventually excommunicated him. But he kept preaching anyway at the Bethlehem Chapel. The place was packed. People standing outside the building to hear this man teach the Bible in their language. And the more he preached the truth, the more he preached in opposition to man's man-made system. 
I have always contended, and I believe it to be true, if pastors today would simply focus on studying and preparing to deliver the Word of God as it is given in the Bible, every single verse throughout the entire Bible, they would not be able to contain all the people that would come to hear it. We don't need church growth concepts, man-made things that try to market the church to get people's interest. It is the Lord who does the saving. And the scripture says the Lord gives the increase. We just need to be faithful to the word. The more courageous John Hoos became, the more heavily he leaned on the Bible, which he proclaimed as the final authority. Finally, the church developed a strategy. They came after him. They announced that no citizen would ever receive Holy Communion and no citizen would ever be buried in the church, on the church grounds in that region as long as John Hoos continued to preach. So to spare the people the loss of the Lord's table and the right to an appropriate, appropriate funeral, he left Bethlehem Chapel in 1412. And he went out into the countryside where he continued to preach and began to write many treaties. And these treaties were picked up by people and read every time he wrote one. People couldn't wait to get their hands on them. His greatest treaty that he wrote was called The Church. He knew he needed to define the church for a people who really didn't understand the biblical view. So he completed this work. It was read publicly in Prague so the whole population could know what the Bible said about the church. He said three things that were radical for that day. Number one, he said that every believer belonged to the church. Every believer. This went against the official Roman Catholic position, which said that the true church consisted of the pope, the, uh, the cardinals, the bishops, and the priests. The people were not, part, were not the church. They were the, the lay people were not the church. The common people were not real members of the church. But when they ate the bread, they communed with the church. When they would take the Lord's table, they communed with the church. But they were not given the, the cup. Only the, only the hierarchy could have the cup. It was not given to the people. And now John Hoos is saying, you are the church. Where did he get that crazy idea? From here. Number two, he said that the authority of the Bible was higher than the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. Yowza. This was something that Wycliffe had also made very clear. It's interesting, by the way, that Hoos's words on the Bible being the true and final authority over the church, his very words were later repeated verbatim by Martin Luther, a hundred years later. But it was the third thing that he said in the treatise on the church that cooked the goose. He said that Jesus Christ himself is the head of the church. What he essentially did was defy the pope. But that's not all he said. He said, the head of the church is not a pope who through ignorance and the love of money is corrupt. Speaking out truth. You know, I hear Christians today say, oh, just don't use names. You shouldn't do that, Pastor Greg. It's just not, it doesn't make you look good when you talk about, excuse me, Paul did it, Peter did it, and the saints that were before us did it. I'm sorry, you can sit, tell me all you want how popular 
Joel Osteen's church is in Houston. It's the largest building that people meet in for church on Sunday. But he's the guy who, when asked, do you really believe that Jesus is the only way to God? And his answer was, who am I to, to say? He waffled. He was not upholding the truth of God's word. What kind of a shepherd would I be if I didn't communicate that to you so you would know the difference and not be sucked into a sensual church experience, but follow the truth? Next week, Pastor Brenton is going to deliver the message, and it's going to really help you understand, even in the musical arena, all the Christian music out there is not good it's doctrinally unsound. Some of it's actually heresy. And many times, some of the people that are writing these songs or the churches that they represent are in all-out heresy. I'm not saying this because we're trying to separate ourselves from the church. There are many wonderful churches. I'm just saying that the true church isn't everybody who claims to be a church. The true church are those who uphold the Word of God and won't, won't drift from it. So who says the head of the church is not a pope who through ignorance and love of money is corrupt? Wow. Then, it's as if that's not enough, he said uh, he denied that any man is the head of the church, especially one who, here it is, quote, lives a reprehensible life. Continues. He said all reprobate leaders are disqualified from leading the church in any way, but Jesus alone is the head of the church. I want to say this. Today... In certain tribes, certain denominations, a pastor can have a moral failure and never leave the pulpit. He gets to preach the next week. They just look at all, they, they, they just, oh, it's that. Are you kidding? The only reason I have the privilege and the honor of standing before you is because I uphold the truth. The second that I don't do that, that in my own life I turn from that, my friend, I will not be in the pulpit the next week. In fact, to me, the ministry's over. I'm not going to be a pastor. Only the Lord could resurrect a, a, a ministry at that point. Uh, I, I couldn't do it. He finally said, to rebel against the Pope was to obey Christ as the head. Well, that was it. They cooked the goose for affirming that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The people of Bohemia were furious at the execution. They repudiated the Council of Constance and the bishop who led it. And over the next several years, a coalition of Hussites, they came together, having refused to submit to the authority of the Holy Roman Emperor of the Church. They eventually formed a little group called Unitas Fratrum, the Union of the Brethren, which became the foundation for the Moravian Brethren, who developed a very deep interest in missions. And it was from the Moravian missionaries that John Wesley and his brothers were saved. John Hus had influence on the Reformation. He had influence on the Wesleys. He had influence on the Calvinist and on the Arminians. because he would not give in to heresy.
because he stood for truth and fought against error. Because he taught from the Scripture to the people in that region, in their own language, the Word of God. Friends, I'm sharing this with you today because this is a crazy world. What we're seeing in the world today is unprecedented, really, in, in many ways. I'm not saying there weren't other times in history where we didn't see things as bad and even worse. I'm just saying that what we're seeing right now as a nation, we've never seen this before, where America has lost its bearing, where we've pulled away from being a God-fearing nation. I don't believe we've ever been a Christian nation. From the very beginning, there were founding fathers who were deists. They were not Christian. So we can't say that. But we were God-fearing, and they were God-fearing. And they worked that into every major document of this nation that we should fear the Lord. Our nation doesn't seem to fear the Lord at the top anymore. We're not interested in that, which means it puts us in a place where in the near future we could face persecution as Christians. That's why we're going to be looking at different church history leaders, because I want you to be prepared for what's coming. I want you to be able to stand like those before you who once for all delivered the truth of God's word in spite of the persecution and the differences of the people of their day. That's who we are. You're a martus. You're a martyr. You say, I haven't died for Christ, but you're willing. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be willing to die for Christ. So anything shy of that, listen, you're not a believer. The Bible actually says in Revelation that those who are truly saved will endure to the end. Christians are going to endure to the end. That doesn't mean that by your works you're going to make it. It means that a true Christian will not give in, will not turn from Christ. Those who turn from Christ were never truly saved. It gives you much to think about, doesn't it? Let's pray. Father, as we looked at Scripture and as we really didn't unfold the, 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 the passage, but we just set the framework for next week and the week after that, Lord, we are in a time when Christians need to stand. And Lord, so many of us, we're not prepared to stand. We're not equipped to stand because we're no longer even reading the Bible. Father, I pray that you would strike us in our hearts and that you would begin to move us at the foundational level and we would have a fresh interest in the study of God's Word that we would once again begin to submit to the Holy Spirit each day as we live, allowing Him to conform us to the image of Jesus and we would be Christians who stand for truth in any day that we would be found faithful along with the saints who have been faithful through the ages. I pray, Lord, that this message, which is a hard message to hear, because in America it seems like the message in the church is basically some prophecy over how God's going to bless you and give you this, and you're going to have favor in the community, and it's all about us. When the Scripture clearly teaches it's all about you, the greatest joy of a believer is to bring glory to God the Father, not receive glory himself. So, Father, remind us of that. 
prepare us over the next couple weeks. May we become students of the word and may we be, may we be submissive to the spirit. And may we prepare ourselves for what might lie ahead. And may we be faithful to share the truth of the gospel every opportunity that the Spirit gives us. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Friends, I want to thank you for your time today. We have elders and prayer partners who will come and stand at the front. If any of you have physical needs or know of someone who's hurting and you want someone to pray, would you please come forward and they'll be glad to pray with you about anything going on in your life we, because we care about you. And keep Ray Garcia, one of our elders and one of our pastors, in prayer. Ray uh, was not feeling well yesterday. I don't believe it's COVID-related. Um, Ray's got some other things that he's been facing and dealing with. We don't know yet, but he went to the emergency room this morning. So if you would, keep Ray Garcia in prayer, along with so many others that are really struggling right now. And uh, let's do all we can, church. Every time that we as a staff hear of someone who has COVID, we try to ask the question, what can we do for you? And secondly, we follow up with, can we provide meals? Because our church members love to do that. We will provide meals. So if you know of someone and they are wanting meals, if you would let us know, we would be glad to do that. But I would ask you to do it. I would ask you to ask that question to the person that you know from this fellowship who is struggling and see what's going on and do they need help? Do they need meals? And then let us know, okay? We want to be a faithful church in this day that we're living. And so God bless each of you. Come and receive help if you need it uh, from our elders, okay, and the prayer partners. God bless each of you. Thank you so much for being part.